1: that's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text
0: or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't
1: hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. It's Swindon time. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside.
2: Bashir, goal for now that's Steve White. Touch to Mitchell, it's another goal. Incredible huddle. Taylor has scored, and that surely means it's the Premier League for Swindon Town
0: now. But first a goal by Jan Otto. Martin. Austin going. Not I would win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's crazy. Yeah! Oh, it's fluid. Hello, Ian. Hi, Rich. It's been a while. I've been trying to get you on the pod for a very, very long time. It's, it's good to finally talk to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, you could only do Skype before, couldn't you? So <laughs> I've had some uh, technical difficulties for that.
0: <laughs> yes, t- technology has advanced somewhat since we started doing this <laughs> podcast. But of course, we have met in person because you were part of the Stranger's Shield. And it was a delight to see you looking so happy on the county ground pitch again, I must say.
2: Thank you. No, it was a delight to be there. I think um, you put on a put on a great day for, for a great cause. And, um, yeah, it was good to see some, some familiar faces and um, to go on the pitch again. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> right, OK, so you listen to
0: the pod. I do the pod all the time. I always ask the same question, but we're going to cut around that because we know... One thing we know about Ian Herring is he is a Swindon Town fan, which is fantastic to hear. Now, before we go into that, were there any previous sins when you were growing up? Was there a Liverpool, a Man United, a Chelsea, a Tottenham, an Arsenal, or you Swindon from the start? Uh,
2: Liverpool as well. Ah. Uh, but yes, I mean,
0: Swindon essentially, but Liverpool also. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, at least one of them's doing all right at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I mean you're from the area, so you're you're Swindon born. What what are your memories of, of Swindon Town growing up? Because you used to go quite a lot, didn't you, when you were younger?
2: Yeah, so um I went with my brother, and my dad my dad took me and my brother for for three seasons in the sort of late 80s early 90s we didn't miss a game for home or away um for three whole seasons so and I think back then growing up it was it was built on a lot of success it seems and um happy memories which is in the latter part of my life so far that that sort of seems to have changed but yeah, growing up um the the sort of watching a football was completely different back then as well also um, like I say, I was very young, but me and my brother, we used to go to away games with my dad and we we a lot of the grounds when we went away would let us go through the turnstiles, two for the price of one sort of thing. Um, would that happen now? No chance. So, um, yeah, things like that. And obviously standing on the terraces, so I was generally running around being a terror rather than watching the game. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that that translates onto the pitch in future years, by the sounds of it. But yeah, a uh, little <laughs> bit,
2: little bit. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember your first game, or do you or your first season? So I appreciate if you go to loads of games, you kind of they all kind of congeal into one, don't they?
2: Yeah, they do. And I I was very young, um, ninety two, ninety three, obviously. But I think we started going around eighty nine, ninety. And I was only six, seven then. So it's it's very sort of. Distant memories, if you if you like, but um, we used to go with the same group of people on a coach to away games, and I think the away games tend to stand out a bit more than a bit more than the home games. Um, things like the member in the Birmingham away when oh, we four went down. No, you weren't. <laughs> yeah, we four went down, and um, my dad wanted to, wanted us to leave at half time. Went to leave. Um, gates were locked, weren't allowed out, so I had to stay. And 6-4 uh, brilliant. So, memories like that. But yeah, like you say, it does all sort of blur into one, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, when you go to football now, right, you sit in the stands at any level. And I always feel sorry for parents. And I, I'll be the same when, when my kids sort of go a little bit more regularly, because I think I always see the parents, they, they really want their kids to just be enthralled by it. Right? Because I remember. Vividly, I don't remember much of the first game I ever went to, but I remember going up the steps and seeing the pitch. That's 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 one of the just craziest, the vivid memories I have. But nowadays, and this isn't youth of today because we would have been the same. You know, you you, they start the game watching it, and then within fifteen minutes they're on iPads or whatever, like distracted. And as long as they're not kicking up a stink, when for you. When you were younger did it become just something that you used to do with your dad and your and your family and then it became like this is swindon town this is this is this is the club i support
2: um i i think it was always in me uh, in a sense of that club i support um i think we used to early days we used to we used to watch from the North stand quite a bit because that tended to be the family stand. Yeah. Um, but then as I got a bit, old, a little bit older, I'd sort of say 11, 12, then we went into the town end <laughs> um, and it was a bit more vociferous behind the goal and actually being behind the goal. To, for me, when I was so young up in the North stand, it seemed so far away. You could see everything. It seemed huge, but getting down and close in the town end with, with more people, seen bunched in together that yeah that was that was when it was
0: Swindon Town to me. Nice for me because we're, we're the same age so you know I went in 92-93 I went in the Premier League season 93-94 but I, I'm just interested to know where you stand on this I think 95-96 the sort of what is now the League One Championship winning season that that is the season I look back quite fondly maybe that's not Maybe that's because I didn't go to enough games in the Premier League year or the year before that, but 95-96 just seemed to be the year for me that everything just was like, oh, I'm a Swindon fan and I'm very happy about that. What, what about you? Were you? I mean, I was diehard before, but just something about 95-96 that, that really hit home for me.
2: Uh, rather uh, For me, rather than seasons as, as, as such... Because as I got a bit older I, my I didn't I didn't tend to go and watch Swindon as much the older I got and I think that's more because my playing of football become more if that makes sense yeah. so Saturdays were kind of taken up with myself playing which has continued as I've got older but it, it was more sort of players that vividly stick out for me and kits and and for me my favorite was the um, Castro kit with a round neck 95, 96. that sort of, yeah, that sort of era, that's very vivid for me and some of the players in that team were, were I look at now and look back and it, it amazes me how we could attract players to the club. But then you think back to the club and even you look at it now for me, it, it is an attractive club and we, we were very blessed back then.
0: Yeah, 95-96, maybe the season after, is the last of the eras where players stayed for longer. Nearer to the end of the 90s, that's when we start getting that sort of merry-go-round of players just coming in and out, coming in and out. 95-96, um, Castrol's kit is is iconic. It's funny because we won the league pretty comfortably and then the next season in the championship level, it was a bit, it was a bit tight on the neck, said the players said, wasn't it? It was... Oh, it was a bit harder for the for the players. <laughs> I mean, a hell of a team, really. I mean, was it Digby in goal, end of the yep. era? You had right back, you would have had. Maybe
2: Kerslake, maybe, or was that a bit oh, after? He's a bit
0: after. He's a bit before. So it's was Ian Culverhouse, isn't it? Yeah. And then Bowden... Mark Seagraves and Sean Taylor, Steve McMahon in holding. And you had Scott Leach came in at the end of the season, Wayne O'Sullivan, Ty Gooden, Peter Ford, just forgotten about. We never talk about Peter Ford. And, of course, Finney and Allison. That was a really good side, wasn't it? The Chief. Chief. Very,
2: yeah, yeah. It was
0: so satisfying when, when we signed in from Bristol City. And, you know, I know it's kind of like one of these rivalries where both teams pretend not to be bothered but when we play each other we're very bothered but back then taking them from city was so satisfying they took taylor a year late and i was gutted but (laughs) but oh man allison was so good
2: yeah it's um it's a huge rivalry isn't it unfortunately it was um my last game, I played for Swindon at Ashton Gate, but um, so this is, I don't like them a bit more because of that. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, back then, it was that, that was the one, really. I know Oxford is big now, um, but for me, growing up, Bristol City seemed to be a bigger local derby, funnily enough. Um, I, I might be wrong with that, but that's just that was just my feeling. And um, it's a shame to see where the golf between two clubs now.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, this podcast has discussed the rivalry over and over again, and we all say Oxford's the biggie, but everybody looks to Bristol City. It's so funny. Um, I think it's more, not necessarily, I just think it's more satisfying beating them because their fans get so wound up. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's very, very enjoyable. But yes, they are, we are dusting their wind these days. So, you know, before we move away from the fandom, who are the big favourites from from your childhood watching Swindon who are the players
2: um various um when I was really young apparently Steve Foley was my number one but there's people like John Gittins the late John Gittins people I used to love the people that wore their hearts on their sleeves essentially um Colin Coldwood was one and um David Kerslake also Nicky Summerby the two right backs um I used to really enjoy watching them play and um Latterly, I'd, I'd I'd get um I'd get a bit of a ribbon if I didn't say I used to enjoy Kevin Watson and his wonderful wonderful curtains flapping around. <laughs> he
0: he was he was the right player under the wrong manager. Kevin Watson was a hugely talented player, even with the curtains, um, and he was just wasted at Swindon, and it's it's a huge shame because he, he, he had he had the ability, and McMahon just didn't, didn't utilise him properly. That's my opinion.
2: Definitely. Um, I've spoke to him at, at great length of, about it. Um, obviously fortunate to have him as my assistant at Hungerford, but um, he was brought in by Steve McMahon. Steve McMahon was a very industrious player himself. And um, Kev was brought in more of a sort of passing midfielder and, um Maybe brought to the club under false pretences a little bit, but then there was people like Scott Leach at the club that that were getting in ahead of him, and the the way Steve McMahon played himself, you you could potentially see why. But no, he was a very talented footballer, Kev. We're going to have to get him on, aren't we? So he yes, can tell us definitely. what those
0: false pretences were. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's talk about you as as a footballer. So you know, when was it apparent? that you had the potential to sort of make it within the, the, the Football League system of, of youth football?
2: Um, I don't know, really. I look back to, to when I was younger and I think under nines, I was playing a year up for Swindon Schoolboys under 10s, um, which back then wasn't, there was only two of us, me and JP Mills, um, who played the year up. But then I didn't actually get in in, in my first trial. Um, I got rejected for that there was four trials didn't pass the first trial and then all of a sudden I was still at the second one um, <laughs> so I think it was a bit of a case of people telling the, the selectors that they'd made a bit of a mistake and so yeah perhaps back then there, there, there was an element of I could be half decent, but I look at even now nine, ten nine, 10 years old, is such a young age and there's so much, so much people developing. Um, but 13 was when I started playing for Swindon and had to stop playing for my local side, Stratton Juniors. Um, so yeah, that was, that was when really it started to sort of take a grip and obviously I love football, just wanted to, wanted to enjoy it and, and playing for my hometown club at that, at that age. Brilliant.
0: When you say enjoy it, that that's something that I always talk about on this, especially in the early days of the podcast, because youth football is quite divisive in the, in in the sense that that's such a young age. And a Charlie Austin was on here, and he's dead against you know that that age group being in, in in a youth system. They should be just enjoying football. Definitely did did you did it become more? Of, was it was it still as enjoyable as it was for when you were playing for Stratton when you were playing for Swindon at that young age?
2: more enjoyable for Stratton is something that I've started to look back on and talk more about with people and it's everyone's got their different opinions of how they should do should do things and and the 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 professional system the system at professional clubs obviously I think about it more now having a young son and yeah I'd I'd love him to, to, to be a footballer one day but I want him to be what he wants to be. And um, I think parents uh, um, are a problem um, to a certain degree. And, And we see kids at six, seven, eight, nine years old on social media signing a contract for a professional club. Just let them enjoy it. And I look back and I I stopped playing for Stratton at under twelves, went into under thirteen Swindon only. That's because of the rules you play for Swindon and that's it, no one else. And I wish I didn't. I wish I played for Stratton with my friends, everyone I knew, because essentially you you've got to have fun. Um back then I'd done the right thing for, for, for at the right time. Um but yeah, I'd 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 encourage anyone if you're not having fun at the game of football. Then, then just go go somewhere where you can have fun, and if if that is your local club and not a professional club, so be it. If you're good enough, you will always get picked up.
0: Yeah, agreed. Yeah. So at Swindon, then, what was the setup like in the uh, in the nineties for an
2: under twelve? <laughs> um, talk me through that. Um, a lot different. So <laughs> uh, early memories were we used to train indoors. I think it possibly was at Croft at the start and um so in trainers and it it was it was back then it was very technical ball skills and stuff and as, as a young kid 10 11 years old you just want to run around and play football but it 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 started all those many years ago 20 odd years ago of the technical aspect so i remember that a lot but um as we got a bit older like i say 13 14 years old we used to train over Greendown two nights a week i think it was mondays might have been Tuesdays but definitely Thursdays and um, then we play a game on the weekend but there used to be the old Astroturf and um, which wasn't <laughs> wasn't very nice to say the least um, and then as I got to about 14 13, 14 they decided to bring um, fitness sessions in. On a Thursday night, I think it was Mo- Monday night. Sorry, Monday night fitness sessions, and we played a game at the weekend, and then went on to the Monday to do fitness. And essentially, we were just running and running and running, and that was something that I look back on, and it really, <laughs> it really baffles me to to play a game on a on a Sunday morning, and then Monday evening, you go into training and running, yeah. um, essentially. And that that I I don't know that might have been part of my where I look back and wish I played for Stratton type thing. So I just used to remember going getting in the car, mum taking me to to play for Swindon Town, and and I'm falling asleep on the way, <laughs> dreading waking up because I knew I knew well, what I'd be doing. But that's one again, that's one vivid memory. But um, that that did change quite drastically. That was only probably for a season or two at the most.
0: Yeah, in the 90s, schools and football clubs became obsessed with the bleep test or the beat test, didn't they? Just doing it relentlessly. I remember back then it was just doing it all the time, did they? Who were the coaches um before under 18
2: level then? Um uh, back then, uh Jonathan Wales. I think it was Jonathan Wales, Mr. Wales, He was a school teacher. Um we, I had Rivers, Chris Rivers's dad. Um, who else? I can't remember. I only really remember up into the youth team. Um, but yeah, there was there was all sorts. Um, Ian Palmer, I think back then. Chris Allen's dad, Martin Allen. Um, so yeah, no, I don't think many of them are actually at the club coaching now. Hmm. Um, it's all it's all changed. It has got all a lot more professional. Um, Jonathan Trick was the was the fitness. Fitness coach at the time, um, back in those early years. But the, the, really, who stand out? It wasn't so much the coaches for me. It was more um, the head of the youth development. Um, and first of all, is Tommy Wieldon, who um, what a wonderful man, first and foremost. And I have fond, fond memories looking back at him. And you've only got to see the see what um, what wonderful work his boy Tommy Junior is doing over in Canada. He's going to manage ah. them, isn't
0: he? At some point, yeah. I think. He's
2: managing them. He's changed. He's changed the whole dynamic of Canadian football, and they set up their own league and stuff. So yeah, and t- Tommy's still in the game doing certain bits down in Cornwall with for, for Chelsea satellite centres. So yeah, Tommy Weldon, and then latterly after him, Phil Cannon, um, who, who's also a great a great bloke as well, and still in the game doing bits with Chelsea. So yeah, them two essentially had a had a huge influence on my career. Yeah, brilliant.
0: So under-18s then. So you made it through, which is which is great. Um, so we get an idea. Who, who were in the under-18s with you at that time?
2: Um, well, I, so you say I made it through. I didn't actually at first. Go. So I Tell didn't. Me. I didn't. So I actually got released three times from oh. Swindon. <laughs> so um, the first time was when I left school uh, um, to get into the, to the YTA. It was a white year back then. Everyone was scholarship, youth training scheme. And um, I got released. So that was that. I thought it was dream over for Swindon at 16 years old. But um, I went out on trial to Reading. Didn't get in at Reading. They didn't invite me back. Then went to Portsmouth, um, which I absolutely hated. Um, my dad took me down there every day. I was playing with Gary O'Neill was in uh, in the youth team back then and I was on trial with them, taking my own training kit, just didn't feel a part of it at all. Um, they invited me back for a second week, said to my dad, I don't want to go. He said, don't go. With that, the very same weekend, Swindon phoned me back up, said, we want to offer you non-contract terms, and um, which I jumped at the opportunity obviously. Yeah. So then within, I think, three weeks of the start of the season, it was under-17s and under-19s back then. So within three weeks, I was playing every week in the under-19s and they offered me full scholarship forms. Did they ever explain why they let you go and then and then brought you back? No, I think no, not, not really. I think um, it's a bit better now, but stuff like that, I think communication between coaches and players when it comes to personal, or stuff like that isn't what it should be well you know if you if you hear things about Swindon town at
0: the moment <laughs> i'm not quite sure <laughs> wow well, yeah
2: you, I'm not quite yeah, sure you, that's you think it you'd think it would be better now but unfortunately it isn't and and when it's uh when it, especially when it's a hard conversation um not just in football, in any industry, if it's a hard conversation to have, there's too many ways people can hide behind things like um, phone calls, text messages and stuff like that. When um, the not nice thing, but the most respectable thing is to front it up and have that conversation face to face. Yeah, absolutely.
0: In in the under 17s, under 19s, who's looking after you? Who is it? Is it Canon or was it?
2: No, it was Viv Busby.
0: Viv Busby. Okay, so he was... Yeah. Yeah
2: and what yeah, what was this, it like
0: working under
2: viv um uh, what a wonderful man again um first and foremost he was he was seemed a bit older so as a player you don't this it to me it wasn't a name that i'd ever heard of but you just do a bit of bit of research and he was a wonderful footballer as well um he was and uh, i think the biggest thing that i took off viv was was how calm he was any situation he was extremely calm and um it was a bit turbulent in in um when I was in the youth team because we had a, a lot of different coaches unfortunately Viv had leukemia um whilst he was at the club he he recovered and come back um then Viv left and we had another co- we had another coach after that so but Viv initially and he, he was fantastic
0: in, in terms of then your teammates who who were your teammates in those
2: two years So I was actually at the club for three years. Again, it was different back then, so it was up to under 19, so it was a three-year scholarship. So I went up as a first year, um, and the people in the year above me, Alan Young, Chris Collins, Kev Halliday, Nathan Edwards, Brian Smith – there are five, like Steve Purcell, I think, might have been there. So they were the ones sort of the year above that I really remember. It's more, again, for me, it's more local Swindon players I know that I, I remember, which my age group, there was only myself and two others who, who sort of dropped out as well. But but yeah, they, they were the main ones that I remember from my first year going in. And like I say, I was, it was different. And then as I got older, so my second year... And third year was Michael Pook and Chris Taylor, Mark Raycott, um, players like that. Really,
0: yeah. The the, the you've set up at that stage was very local, wasn't it? It was very West Country driven. Like in the years before you, you would have been there. We played some fantastic names from London and and so yeah. forth. But then it really be became localized. So. I think a lot of Oxford, a lot of Torquay, a lot of Exeter, and things like that. Plymouth, yeah, Ancestor Academy. How did how did you find that? Would you was that was that a good enough standard for you guys, or do you wish that you played a, a, a bit more
2: against the, the bigger youth teams and academies? No, I personally think it was better back mm-hmm. then because it was more regionalised um, for one, so not as much travelling. Um, but also back then you had a proper reserve team midweek, um, so every week there's a reserve fixture as well as your, your, your 17s or 19s game at the weekend. So if you're performing well for the for the youth team, essentially, you will be in the reserves midweek along with the first-team players that aren't in the first-team squad and the first-team players that are coming back from injury. And I look back on that and we, we played um, Bristol City, Robin Holbert got sent off and um, playing against Cardiff coming up against players like Des Hamilton. They're two that I sort of remember, but I think I broke into the reserves fairly young. And the the time I was in there, I played a lot of reserve team football. And you're playing against seasoned seasoned professionals, um, but the young players of today don't get that. And some of them can be at the football club until they're 21, 22 years old, never played an adult game, which um, in my eyes is madness.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And about a decade ago, when I lived in the Northeast, I used to go because I lived nearby, I used to go and watch Newcastle United reserves play quite a bit. And even when the senior players used to come, I remember seeing Sol Campbell, I saw Man City go then, and, Did- and Didi Haman played, but they never seemed to be a part of the unit. They used to, just, you could see that they were just an individual that was told they had to go and play 60 minutes. It didn't matter what was around them. They had no interest at all. And I th- one of the players I saw that was senior, it was, a, it, it was at um, Northumberland um, Northumbria FA, so it was a Raylins game. The guy yeah. just walked straight off and was driving home, you know, in the 65th minute. He wasn't sat on the bench or anything. He, he, he'd left and, and was speeding off. It was crazy. Um, I mean, for you then, let's talk. So you would have played alongside Alan Reeves, Wayne Cobian and Neil Rudder yeah. surely.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, uh, they were at the club and they really very well. And um, it, I go back a bit further. So when I was 16, 17, I was playing with the likes of Fraser McHugh, Sol Davis, um, Paul McAreevy, James Williams, who broke into the first team at such a young age. Um, so they were kind of the young pros at the time. That were that were sort of dropping dropping back in. So, but yeah, that 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 the, that reserve setup. When I got to nineteen, they changed it, and that's when it sort of. The, the, there seemed to be only one reserve team game a month. Um, that was the start, really, um, and that's, and the year I got a pro, I I hadn't played a game for months because there was no reserve team games and then with no with no sort of games behind me you're thrust into a first team game supposed to be fully fit and you obviously not um combination of other things <laughs> didn't help <laughs> me stay as fit as I should but but yeah Reevesy and Wangobia and people like that they 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 were regulars for the reserves. Enjoyed the old town did you uh, back then <laughs> something like that at the new town
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> james williams is still only 38 that's <laughs> i know it's amazing <laughs> insane, isn't it insane isn't it but i, I, I think player. i expected him to sort of play 200 300 times the swindon back then because he came in so young i think he was about 16 17 wasn't 16, he yeah so and the heart of the and defense at 16 in the championship as well yeah crazy and fraser McHugh. i remember he dipped out of professional game and then came back for a little while I think with Notts County
2: Um, yeah he was um, he was a talented talented player um, but what a character as well (laughs) <laughs> um, there was a lot of characters at Swindon back then and um, um, he talk, certainly to me
0: about, of... talk to me about
1: characters
2: I looked up to all of them do you know what I mean and, <laughs> and for me I was six, 15, 16 and you got the likes of him I, I don't know it's, it, it might just be how I am but I've always looked up to players at Swindon that were older than me and thought yeah they look like proper men but I don't feel like anyone <laughs> would think that about me. If that makes sense, it's a it's a strange mindset to have. But yeah, there were there was quite a few characters, Bobby Howe and and people like that. It's um, yeah.
0: I've heard stories about Bobby Howe, which I will not talk about on the podcast. <laughs> Good <laughs> lord, <laughs> advisable. Oh my goodness me! It's funny that you say that in terms of like, you looked up to them because. My memory of, of of you when you were coming through is that you looked absolutely petrifying. You you looked like one of the bigger boys that would give me a dead arm in home economics,
2: you know. And that was probably the haircut.
0: <laughs> it was exactly the haircut or lack of it. You exactly, know what I'm you were an absolutely petrifying looking person. That was me. I'm this like I said, I'm a little bit older you, and I'm this weedy teenager, and then. <laughs>
2: No, I think that's uh, the wrong image, Rich. The wrong <laughs> image, hence why, hence why I've uh, grown the hair now. <laughs> and, and surely that's where <laughs>
0: Spud came from.
2: No, I was a bit, bit younger. Um, I was always the one to be dirty, so I've been called that since I was about six. <laughs> Still late, Al
0: Mocker. Oh, slipped like my Hazard. Oh, the pass was wasn't that
2: good enough. Sotheby. Good strike. Oh,
1: oh a
2: Nikki
0: When 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 was it beginning to look like you were gonna sort of break into the first team at Swindon? When when were they starting to sort of have you around the seniors a bit more than the reserves and they
2: were they were having a proper look at you? I first travelled, I think in my second year um, of being in the youth team, first travelled to Huddersfield away, um, was sort of flirting in and out a little bit Um, and I played, the start of that season I played a couple of pre-season, was involved in a few pre-season friendlies um so yeah that was the first season really but then I was there for the third my third year which was which was strange there was only me and I think there was one other that was there for a third year scholarship and they stopped it there was the last year for a three year so there was second years coming in that was going to get released or not at the end of, at, at the same year I was there so and then in my third year I did actually get released again um I was told by Andy King that I had no future at the club I wouldn't be getting a pro at the end of the season. So um, I went out on loan to Salisbury City at the time for a month. I I got booked um, five times in my first five games. (laughs) Welcome to adults football. So um, then I went to Chippenham for a month. Um, was doing relatively well and the first team had some injury suspensions Andy Gurney was unavailable so um, got a phone call got called back and uh, made my debut at Crew away 1-1-0 um, played against Plymouth then was told by the manager then that he wouldn't change a winning team he did and I still hadn't earned a contract um, we lost away but then by, by then I'd had the conversation and was offered a six-month pro so um looking back, I should have I, I don't think I should have accepted it. And that was probably that's probably my biggest regret, but um hometown club through fear of if I didn't get another club, what that there'd always be that what if. Um I did accept it. And um, but yeah, it, it I played for my played for the club I supported as a boy, so a dream come true in that respect. But my actual pro is tinged with a bit of sadness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think
0: you, you played a couple minutes the year before, didn't you? in in an end of season game, um, Wickham, I think. Yes, so just, come on
2: again. That was my game. Yeah, for you.
0: yeah. The, a couple minutes at the end, but I mean, that the fact that you Swindon Town fan, you make it all way. You're at Birmingham away for the for the six four, and just getting on even if it's for a minute you guys you want to play hundreds of games i get that but just getting onto the pitch having gone through all of that youth football that disruption all those releases just to get on there i mean if if that's that's actually cut to credits in the film moment isn't it? it, it even though you probably don't think about it at the time it must have been a huge deal just to get on
2: yeah, massive. It was. Uh, I won't ever forget the, the that Wickham game. How I made my debut, and it's something that stuck with me. And I try to, you try to tell players now, is because I was itching to get on there. So I had my shin pads on. I had everything, boots tied up, everything, shirt on, just a bib over my shirt. I was ready. I was ready to go whenever I was asked upon. Steve Robinson was next to me. Socks rolled down, boots undone. I think Matty Hewlett went on when uh, got injured with two minutes to go. Kingy's turned round and said, um, Robbo, you ready? He said, no, put the kid on, he's ready. So that, for me, I'll never forget that, what Robbo done then. And, and I know, and I look back and I know why he'd done it. And so, so the gaffer then has so go on then, Spud, you're on. And that's how I made my debut. So yeah, that, that, I was, I was itching to get on and then there's a pitch invasion afterwards and I'll never forget that moment. Um, and then obviously going into the pre-season, next season, you just, you just want to be a part of it. But essentially then you get knocked back a little bit, you're still in the youth team, but yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying and it, I do look back and I am proud and, like I say, I was released three times. I was told twice by the club that 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 there was no future for me before I made my f- full debut. So that that pleases me more than anything else: the resilience and the, the, to to keep going and to sort of prove people wrong. But but then I also look back and and people kid themselves sometimes, and for too long I kidded myself thinking I wasn't given. Uh, um, a great opportunity at the club because they don't look, they don't play youth and stuff like that, and that was wrong. I was given a lot of opportunities, but um, I didn't knuckle down enough. And I think the ones that 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 do really make it once they make that first game, no matter who it's for, their debut, whether it's the club they support as a boy or whoever, that's when it gets harder. Mm. And the ones who think they've made it are essentially. The ones like myself that tend to have a bit of a bumpy ride in the rest of their career. Yeah, I think I think that's
0: a really interesting point, and I think it, it, it's even worse now for young footballers because of social media, and they they have they feel that they have to react. You can't just sort of fade and you've been released and that's it, and you go and find a club now. They you vent, don't you? Because you go through the stages of of, of gr- grieving your your you know your exit from a club, and now they go firing off going, ah, you know, straight away. And then within a couple of hours, they say, well, I wish everyone the best. And then yeah, they move on again it's after
2: a, that. So. It, it's, it's a hard, hard thing when, oh. when for everybody, you, essentially you're releasing somebody and you're crushing their dreams, especially some of these lads that sort of 16, 18, 19, whatever age they may be. And, and, Clubs have to do more. I don't care what level you're at. Clubs have to do more because these kids at 19, it's not only football, they're going through huge life obstacles, relationships with girls or boys maybe. Um, And and for for me at non-league level, it was getting a job and stuff like that. Some of them might be moving out of home, their first house, having to pay their bills, get a car. Those sort of troubles—they're going through. They're—they're growing into men from kids, really. And at at 19, to be to be released from a club, it can do all sorts of mad things. And and uh, like I say, the highest level, especially, but all levels, they need to do a lot, lot more to help these young boys.
0: It's been a while since we talked about him, Andy King. So I mean, every I think both sides of the. uh, of the, of the scale when it comes to Andy, um, as a fan, I was—I he was so limited, he was so frustrating. But <laughs> I, I loved Andy King, and and you know, I think when I'm old and gray and talking to my grandchildren, I'll point to the dugout and I can still see the smoke coming out. You know, his cigars, and he—he—you <laughs> he, 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 know—he told her how it was, even if we didn't want to hear that. Um, he had his favourites, he had players that he didn't like, and I've spoke to both sides. What was your relationship like with Andy King?
2: I loved him as a person. Um, I remember the first day he walked into the building and Colin Todd was the manager and uh, back in the Zara Zara kit days and um, at KEP, King Edward's Place at Wombra. And what a character! We talk about characters. You've got Colin Todd as manager, he's very quiet, and then Kingy as assistant. When he is a what a just life a man that just lives and breathes football, Um, loves being around football players, people on the training grounds. And yeah, he was the one that essentially released me twice. So it's, it, it, there's a bit of sadness from that side. But as a person, um, I think he took a bit of a shine to me when I was in the youth team as well. And and uh, I'll be forever grateful for him for giving me my debut. But but yeah, uh, for me, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah.
0: And what about the players from there? Because were some pretty, you know, pretty well-loved players. Of course, you had Sam Parkin and Danny invincible invincible depends on <laughs> it depends on how you want to go with it it's invincible it always will be as far as i'm concerned who were who the who were the players where when you trained alongside or played alongside them were you just like oh yeah
2: well uh i look back and was a lot of a lot of players come in early on there seemed to be a massive influx in that first year when um when Colin Todd, Andy King come to the club, Kim Heiselberg, I remember his Sports multi-studs he used to have. I used to love them. But um, Kim Heiselberg, Eric Sabin, um, won about 20 pen- penalties in his first 20 games. Mm-hmm. Um, players like that. But um, David Duke as well come in. I was his boot boy. Um, but yeah, the, the, the players that... King he brought to the club was unbelievable. You can he made a lot of mistakes as well. And he used to do wacky things like putting Antoine Van der Linden up front <laughs> and and stuff like that. But all, all all managers get things wrong at certain times. But um, but I think he got a lot right, and he got a lot of stick. And especially when he come back to the club, you have got to remember we had this new chairman come in um, with Roy Evans as manager. Neil Ruddock on an absolute shed load of money. Within three months, the chairman's gone, manager's gone, and Andy King comes back in with, with one with with one sort of man taking up most of the budget. And and yeah, he'd done well in difficult circumstances in his second spell. Such a messy time that was. Um, it was. I mean, it, it, I don't it's it's madness really. I look back and everything's turbulent about Swindon Town from like I said, from until after, from 95, 96 onwards, it just seems to be a roller coaster that doesn't ever stop. And my three four years there as a youth youth team playing a pro, I, I think there was four or five different managers. And um, yes, it's, it's 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 mad.
0: Yeah, they, fans always say never a dull moment. I yearn for that dull moment. Give me a dull moment, please. Just just a couple of years where we just. We're just doing just nice and fine you know winning definitely uh, just give me just give me a couple of seasons where nothing crazy happens and I'll be well happy I've always been really interested with the tail end of your swinding career and I mean you've already alluded to to the fact that you were offered a six-month contract um and then you were let go but I mean you talk about sort of mentality of footballers and whether they've got the mental strength what if your final games for swindon was coming on in the final stages of extra time against leeds united at ellen road close to thirty thousand? you you're still a relative rookie and stepping up and taking a penalty and if that isn't enough to just this guy's got enough on him you know i know it's just a penalty but everything that comes with that especially the, the how emotive that game was because of being ahead and then Paul yeah. Bloody Robinson getting his late equalizer I mean the adrenaline post that must have been incredible
2: it was strange obviously I look back on it now I'm very proud of that one particular moment um, but it was strange I was in the dugout on the bench and and sort of being at Ellen Road that my overriding memory of it was the amount of the the amount of Swindon Town supporters behind the goal. Um, I think there must have been five, 6,000 and packed it out. That's, that's my overriding memory. Then obviously going ahead, winning and Bart getting sent off, um, which he shouldn't have been sent off, I don't think. Um, but Bart got sent off and then, then they scored late and the game went to, went to extra time. So, um, or penalties rather with obviously Paul Robinson. So, um so yeah, that that's my biggest memory. But um, but no, it was going on to the pitch. I think Aaron. I don't. I didn't even touch the ball till my penalty. Alan. Aaron Lennon skipped past me, and I run after him. He would, he was gone before I got a chance to turn around. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the pen, every every person's different in any different situation. But penalties is something that I've always loved. Um, I've always taken them and and. It's a, Place where I feel comfortable with the ball on that penalty spot, and and that was no different. It's it's a surreal. It's hard to explain. It, it, although those all those people are there, you don't see the faces, you don't see the colours. It's just one blur. All you see is that keeper and the white of the goal. And um, yeah, fortunately for me, I, I sat him on his ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then and then you play, you start and play the full ninety minutes against Bristol City, which is a huge. Game when we're in the same division, it's a big game. I don't care what anyone says. We lose it, but it's it's not. You know, it was Bristol City were better than us at that stage. You know, it was it was yeah. it wasn't a disgraceful sort of showing. I remember Mooney take it, you know, put us ahead, and then the future Swindon lads Peacock and Brown um, doing the rest. Unfortunately, but again, I mean, you got to remember at this stage as a fan. I'm just seeing, I'm remembering that you play, you coming on against Leeds, you know. Scoring a penalty, you play ninety minutes in a derby, and then by the end of the year, you're at Chippenham Town, and I just that's such a contrast. You know, I I I I don't understand why that that happened to the devil. I mean, was there a reason? Was it simply that the six month contract meant that there was no league clubs that wanted you, or what happened?
2: I don't. uh, Again, it was. It was a bit strange, bit surreal. I signed for Swindon, pro contract on £150 a week. Um, so it wasn't exactly a lot of money as well. Do you know what I mean? 19 years old, 150 quid a week. Um, so, yeah, it grates on me to this day, that Bristol City game for a whole number of factors. Um, like I said, touched on earlier, I hadn't played a game for a month. I hadn't played any football for a month, other than training. And at that period, that was a, a period when the manager was: if you do well, you can you can have the Monday off. So that turned into every week, and we so essentially we was training Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and that was it. So for for over a month, I'm doing three training sessions a week and a bit of running on a Saturday when I'm not involved in the squad, and that's it. So. I didn't take it upon myself to keep myself as fit as I, possi- I I should have, looking back. But with that, I was always a naturally fit person, no matter what I'd done. I was always at the front of the running, um, which you can do when you're young. But to be on your mettle for a game, you need more than that. and. I was going out drinking far too much when I look back, going out Saturdays and Sundays because we'd have the Monday off, probably going out on a Wednesday. Now i full, wow, that I wouldn't be in the squad. And all of a sudden, Saturday morning, we're hour and 45 minutes before kickoff, tap, get pulled pulled over by the manager. But I'm starting you today. I hadn't even been in a squad for a month before. Um, so first thing I do, phone me dad, he's... Motored down the M4 so as he could be there. Um, was I happy I was playing? Yes. Did I give myself and essentially my team the best possible opportunity of me doing one? No. Um, that being said, did the manager help as well? I don't think so. I remember it vividly. We were one 0 up at half time, playing four four two. All of a sudden, we've come in at half time and we're playing three five two with me as right wing back. Um, I've got a hot cup of tea thrown on me when I took a throw in a minute into half time they had Mickey Bow left back, Aaron Brown left midfield and and by 70, 80 minutes I was gone, my legs were gone um, but you just try and hang hang in there but unfortunately their winner ball got played inside me which is a big no-no for a full back and Aaron Brown done the rest and I played with him in future and I every single time I saw him i let him know he ended my career <laughs> oh
0: man
2: <laughs> so yeah but uh, it, it, yeah and then I was at Chippenham I don't know when I when I was young I'm, I'm a Swindon boy I, I I'm not ashamed to admit that I I got scared of the thought of moving away um I wanted to be at home and and yeah perhaps when I did get released from Swindon. I maybe should have put myself out there a bit more and and made more of an effort to to get myself a trial back then, but I didn't have an agent back then um uh, maybe I should have I've never had an agent maybe I should have maybe i shouldn't who knows but but my thought of going to Chippenham would was that I'd play every week, I'd put myself in the shop window and I'd bounce back, but it's a little bit harder to get back up than it is to drop down, yeah. Yeah, and I think many
0: a footballer's experience a similar fate. However, um, you did very, very well at Chippenham. You did play every week, scored plenty of goals. Tremendously, uh, they look back at your, you know, career back then. And I know you're, you're well, you know, highly thought of. And you did sort of climb up again because you went to Salisbury. You played for Northwich Victoria as well, and that was a dice roll, you know, going up to Northwich. For goodness' <laughs> sake, and they were they were
2: National League at that stage, weren't they? They
0: were they were Conference, were they not?
2: conference north they conference got demoted They was going to get demoted two divisions um financial irregularities and um, so yeah that was conference north but no Salisbury um i signed a two year deal at Salisbury that was that was some of my happiest times in football um and that was in the conference national and i think at one point we we were top of the league after sort of fifteen 20 games um and we ended up finishing one season seventh just outside the playoffs so for a, for a little club like Salisbury, the, te- the team we had back then there as well was, was frightening. And some of the players that went on to to play in the championship as well were, were, was, um, yeah, we had a bloody good team. It was it was good fun. And yeah, it was a good level as well.
0: That's Daryl Clark and Tommy Whittington. Is that that area? Daryl
2: Clark played, yeah. Nick Holmes was the manager. Um, yeah. Best actual manager, of, not coach, but best manager I've ever had. Um at, at Southampton, but Daryl Clark come as a player initially. Um We had Andy Sandow, Bristol Rovers, Newport, uh, Matt Tubbs, Liam Feeney, Charlie Griffin. Um, you look, you look back. We had some good, good footballers. Yeah,
0: yeah. It, it was a very competitive time down down um, that way, and I think they just sort of. Flew too close to the sun because then the money issues
2: came in, didn't they? And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there's a few stories about that one. <laughs> we went to um, Valencia mid-season for a pre-season trip, and um, obviously it wasn't a fitness trip. A few things happened on that, and <laughs> oh, not oh, long oh. after that, the um, the money man pulled out. Shall we say? What, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like
0: adjusting from like the pro game to working um, and playing football? Because it's a competitive level. You know, but you've got to juggle work with with the game. And I'm always sort of in awe of guys who do this, especially like at National League South, where they're playing a really quite competitive you know level of football with players who are well paid as well now. Yeah. Um and then they've got to do their nine till five and find a job that you know. There's so many more. There's so many more opportunities now where people are like they work in jobs which accommodate
2: the football, but not everyone can do that. What was it like for you, Justine, at that stage? It's hard. Like I said, the clubs need to do more. So something I'm a firm believer in. Um, but I've always thought thought of myself as sort of psychologically, mentally a, a, a tough person. And you just, you get through it, don't you? But that actual, that actual training aspect of, I say training every day when we're only training three days a week, but that full-time environment when you've got access to everything to then go into part-time training on the pitch every week, um, Tuesday, Thursday evenings. And yeah, like you say, having to work as well, it, it's tough. And, and that is why I think that's why a lot of... Um, a lot of kids go out the game, but it's not just the football aspect, it's the career aspect. I was somebody in my head that I was good academically, but then we went to college um, whilst we was doing our YTS. I didn't really get any qualifications for college because I wanted to be a footballer. That's all I wanted to do. So then, then you're finding yourself at 20, getting released. You're, you're four years behind everyone else on a career path when you're entering the world of work. Um, and that that is another tough tough thing for for young kids. But but no, I I started a started off as a painter, a decorator, rubbing skirtings down, and um, coming home with no fingertips left. But um, but yeah, you I think what gets you through that work is that is that football at the end of the week. You know you've got a game of football and that opportunity to be in a shop window to essentially do like Charlie Austin's done and and get and earn a, earn a good career out of the game And it certainly going to work drives people on oh man it's the traveling on a
0: saturday which would do me like <laughs> working every day and then you have to drive especially when you're like national league level where <laughs> you've got to go to
2: go to truro oh. went to truro oh. midweek always all seem to be midweek tuesday nights so finish at Truro, what half ten? By the time you get there, and this is only from Swindon. When they're in the National League, sometimes there's teams like I think um, Maiden, not not the other side. Other side of Maidenhead on the East Coast. Um, so that trip for them. But we come back from Truro, left at half ten in our cars, and um, one road closed, so we had to go around a toll bridge. Get out there, another road closed. Have to do another diversion then we're heading back towards Bristol and then that's junction onto the M4 shut you end up getting home at 4 o'clock in the morning back up for work at 6 in, for the next morning and there's kids up and down the country doing it week in week out at, at, at sort of good levels of football so I think that's why with the disparity of the pay and, and when footballers come out and say they're tired which they are genuinely um, it disgruntles some people a little bit <laughs> yeah um Management, you
0: went and spent, what,
2: three seasons?
0: Um, yeah, just under. Yeah, just under with, um, with Hungerford, doing really good work to keep them in the division for as long as you did. I mean, you, you succeeded all the way through, didn't you? I mean, it was really, you know, compared to the teams that were in that division, you were up against it every year. And yeah. You, you kept them up. I mean, in terms of like you as a manager, who who are the is it is it your time at Salisbury? Are they the ma- is that the main influence of your of your management careers
2: Northwich Northwich Victoria as well? Um, and yeah. that was a huge. I was only there for a season, which was unfortunate and sad because Andy Priest is the manager. He's yeah. um, the assistant with Jamie Vermiglio at Chorley now. Vermig's played with us as well. But Andy Priest was the manager, and Andy Morrison was the assistant who's doing so well with, um, with Connor's Key Nomads over in Wales. Um, he is an unbelievable coach. Um, the, the belief that he can instil into a person is, um, I've never experienced anything like it, and, and just how he is, he's, he's a proper leader of men. Um and you know you you always know he's got your back. But essentially as well, the his knowledge of the game it is, is second to none. And so yeah, for, for, for me, Nick Combs and Andy Morrison are two are two that I take a lot from, but also Michael Jilts as well. From when he was he was at Hungerford as assistant. Um he's another one that that, that I take a lot of things from. Um so yeah, essentially. I look back, and I'm very proud of the work I've done at Hungerford. Um, it was extremely turbulent, um, and I'm proud of the stuff that I've done off the pitch as, as well as on it. Um, and I feel, I've, although they, they, I didn't leave them in such a good a good place, they're they're still in that league, and they've 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 had a platform to be able to go on to better things.
0: Yeah, and I think in 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 non-league, a lot of time is. Once you get to that final game of the season, you really can rebuild um, over the summer and start again. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to struggle. All the time it really does depend on budget. So where does where does the relationship with Kev Watson come into play during all this? Because obviously this is someone that you saw play for Swindon, and
2: then he's your assistant. So um, the Jeremy Newton, the old Swindon, uh, he used to be at Swindon Town, nutty. He was initially my assistant there, um, he got let go by Swindon, I phoned him up, asked him if he'd come and help me, which he did he left at the end of my second season to go to Southampton for a full-time position so I was stuck, no assistant sort of had a little think um, denard about it, um, people I know and then just saw one day on Twitter, Kev Watson out the game, kept putting it on if there's any opportunities so I just took a long shot <laughs> um, messaged him asked if he'd be interested. Um, he said, yeah, can we have a chat? I said, I'll come and meet you. So I drove to Chigwell, centre of London, where he lives, um, which I think went down well with him, and he was surprised I'd driven all that way. But for me, as a as a Swindon Town fan, to have a coffee with him was, was an honour in itself. But sat and spoke to him for two hours, um, and at the end of that, he, he the the deal was done. He was my assistant, and um, he he used to travel Tuesday, Thursday evenings, two and a half hours. We'd finish training at we'd finish training at what nine. We we'd stay till half ten, eleven, talking, football, having a drink, and then he travel home. He was he's yeah he's a, he's, he's he knows football, um, and now he's a he's a friend, which is which is good.
0: Lovely. I mean. We've, we've discussed bits and pieces over the last couple of years, sort of privately, and you are tremendously ambitious when it comes to your, your coaching career. So what, what is the goal for you now? Because obviously, you know, you haven't had a, a managerial job since, since you left Hungerford. What's, what's the plan?
2: Tough question, Rich. Um, I think... The past year or so, what the world's been through, I think a lot of people have reevaluated, re- sort of reevaluating what they're doing with their life, if you like. Um, and it, it sort of, st- when the per- pandemic first hit, um, going back not the April, just gone the April before, I my time was heavily invested in Hungerford Town. Um, I was trying to give the young kids who a lot of them coming out of the game, give them an opportunity to, to step back in. And towards the end, obviously, Kev had left. He'd gone on to Pastures just new. So I was doing everything myself, um, the club. At the end of my three seasons at Hungerford, the players weren't getting paid. Um, I used to do things. I, I, I'd go and pick up cash, pay it into my own account and pay all the players individually. Just so as they could have money before a game on a Saturday I'd turn up and there'd be like ten pairs of socks I'd buy them out of my own pocket um, just so as to to create a as professional environment as we possibly could They're just two of the little things that goes on behind the scenes at a, a club with not such a good infrastructure if you like there's at sort a of high level of football um, I pay for training pitches myself rather than rather than training on the, on the pitch to try and save it so to, to give us every possible opportunity to play better football. All those sort of things. And then all of a sudden, when you're, when you're invested everything into football, and bang, that stops. And also you get to spend time with your family and your young son, who you thought you might never be able to have um, because of documented we've gone through IVF. You kind of reevaluate everything. Um, and to spend that time, there was sort of no offer on the table from Hungerford. Um, so I sort of made contact. And I think it was always a given that I'd stay there yeah. um, because of my time at the club. But there was numerous changes that I wanted to make. And I know all I ever, I didn't ever ask for a lot from Hungerford. All I ever asked for was no matter how low that budget is, that it stays till the end of the season so as I can sign players knowing that if I'm under budget they'll always get their wages which Mm -hmm. weren't a lot as well and that was always broken and the last one was training pitch which I was promised that was all that was broken and so there was numerous things I'd done a lot a lot of work on the psychological side of things we brought in player tech vests which I'd done all the analysis for myself as well But I wanted to, I was heavily invested in the psychological side of it. And I wanted to essentially bring in a sports psychotherapist. So these are young men. I haven't got, I'd had players that are dropping out of college courses, suffering from anxiety, having problems at home, bursting into tears in the office. Now I I can communicate with them and give them all the support they need, but still niggling at the back of their mind, I'm their manager. And if they can't, if they can't, some will have a closed book and not express everything to me through fear of weakness. So I wanted to cut the budget, spend more money rather than players on proper psychological support that wasn't supported. So that was a fundamental reason why I left. Now, obviously with that, I've still not got my UA for B license. So because of getting rejected on it whilst I was Hungerford and what have you. So, Now I'm at a position where I'm 37 years old, spending a lot of time with my son. Um, Do I want to go back into that environment? That's that's something I'm mulling over. I love football. I will. I really want to be a success as a manager. Does that mean that that I'll I'll do that at the, the sacrifice of my family? No way. Not, not again. Um, if it's at a club where I'm supported and the proper infrastructure and people around me can give me the support I require, yes. Um, but if it's somewhere where I'm going to have to do everything, no, because my family are much more important.
1: Absolutely.
2: So, yeah, to sum it up, I don't know. I don't know. I've done a showcase game, uh, helped out with a showcase game at the weekend. I'll help out with scouting every... every um, whoever wants to have my help but I will be involved in football even if that is a sort of youth youth level Nothing wrong with
0: that either but I am beginning to wonder how on earth you were 33 to 1 for the Swindon job um 20 to 1 I,
2: I put Do a get... five on myself to get it into 20s <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man I mean I think we'll have to end it in a moment which is a shame so I, I think we'll end it on a on a, a current player did you did you Think that Akin Odehio had the potential to become a future Swindon Town player of the season. Uh, and for
2: those, know, a, for those who don't know,
0: for those who don't know, he was with you at Hungerford.
2: Yeah, he was. Uh, very fortunate to have him. We had Cam McGilp as well in the same side. Um, but no, Ak. He um, we got him in from Reading. Needed a centre half. Bought him in as a centre half. Then he was in and around the first team. He'd already made his debut at Reading. Um, but then I had discussions with Reading and they didn't see him being able to make, make it as a centre-half. Um, so they asked if, if we'd look at him in midfield. Bear in mind, we still needed to win as well. I brought him <laughs> in as a centre-half. So I put him in centre midfield and, but yeah, he, he was fantastic in centre midfield. Um, so much so that, that he got called back and he was in and around the first team again. Um, they felt he had a better opportunity to make it at a higher level there. So he signed for Swindon and obviously I was delighted for him. Did I think he'd be able to play 30, 40 games and be exceptional week in, week out? I'd, I'd say No but I'm glad to see that he's proved me wrong and he's done as well as he's done. And he is a great kid with a great family behind him as well. So, so yeah, really, really pleased to see him do so well. Oh, on, take a little bit of credit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gave him an opportunity to play men's football. So, and that's what, that's what some of them need. Some of them just need an opportunity. Look at Scott Twine and, and there's, there's, there's too too many of these players, especially at Swindon, that, that that don't get an opportunity because they either leave the club too soon because they know they don't get an opportunity at Swindon Town. So they leave before they're fif- 15, 16 and go on to a Man City or, or Chelsea or or someone like that. Or they stay at the club, don't get an opportunity, and then they filter out. But somebody like Scott, Scott Twine, do I blame him for going? No, I most certainly don't. And I'd have done the same in his situation. Yeah.
0: Lovely.
2: Ian Herring, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you, Rich. It's been a pleasure.
0: (laughs) The Low Strangers is an independent podcast. Views given do not reflect those of Swindon Town Football Club. The music is provided by the great Matthew Kilford, and the podcast artwork is by Matt in Singapore. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. (laughs)
1: about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hi Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy,